Lord Jesus, as we uh, gather here today to hear your words, um, we pray that you would give us clarity of mind, uh, sincerity of heart, speak to us what you have to say to us, and let us hear what you would have us to hear. May we be sweetly broken, uh, may we be restored uh, despite our sin because of, of your great love for us. Be with us now. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, please. May God's grace and mercy and peace be yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So right before the service, someone uh, mentioned to me that they weren't able to be here last weekend, um, and so they wanted me to catch them up on on what they missed last week. So um, I'd like to do that real quick. Um, We're in the Sermon on the Mount right now. For those of you uh, unfamiliar with kind of where to find that, it's in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and I think our our kindergartners did just a great job of encapsulating what that's all about. Uh, Jesus gets up on the mountainside and starts to teach, starts to share uh, truth with the people that, that have followed him, and it's a truth that's been passed down to us. Uh, so last week, uh, we focused on the, the opening verses of Jesus' sermon there, uh, commonly known as the Beatitudes, uh, where Jesus starts uh, every line with a certain word. What was that word? What was that word? Blessed. Blessed or, or blessed, right? Blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, so last week, what we heard is a couple of things. First of all, that, that we are poor in spirit, that, that we mourn, um, that, that things are not the way they should be, but that we are blessed. Because even though we have nothing to offer God, he has given everything to us. He's given us the kingdom of heaven with with all of the, the joy and the comfort and the, the vision of God that go along with that. And then uh, he kind of closed that section by talking about how we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that we are here to benefit other people, uh, to show people, as our uh, congregations um, you know, has been saying for 175 years almost, we're here to show others how beautiful it is to live with Jesus. And so for the rest of the sermon, uh, what Jesus is going to do is unpack um, kind of that portion. What does it mean to be salt and light? He's going to give us very uh, specific, very relevant um, instruction, practical ways to, to live out our lives as salt and light. And uh, so here today, we have kind of the second major movement of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, where he begins to do just that. And the way that Jesus does that, the way that Jesus begins to, uh, to unfold what the life uh, of a disciple of Jesus ought to look like is by correcting a misconception that is as common today as it was then. And so he starts out by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, we would never really probably say this or admit it, but I think oftentimes we do kind of act or or think as if Jesus did come to abolish God's law. Now, we we kind of think of God sometimes in the Old Testament as pretty strict and hard to please, and and the job of Jesus was to come and to to make things easier for us, to to really lower the bar, to, to get rid of the law for us so that we just don't have to bother with it. Uh, But today, Jesus shows us how wrong that understanding is. He shows us that God's law is really, really good, but that it shows us that that we are not. Here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus 
raises the bar to show us just how far short of God's glory we have all fallen. So this misconception that Jesus came to to make the law easier um, was common in his day because all of the rabbis were basically doing that. You know, we usually think of the Pharisees as adding all these man-made rules to what God said that made everything a lot harder for people. And in a way, that's certainly true. But the reason they did that was to kind of domesticate God's law, to, to make it more accessible, to make it possible to follow it. But Jesus makes it clear that what the rabbis of his day had been teaching was not right, that their interpretations of God's law were insufficient. And so we hear Jesus say over and over again in this passage two things. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And what Jesus is doing here is is not changing God's law, not really even updating it. What Jesus is doing is, is showing us what God's law has always meant, what God's good and perfect will for his creation has always been for us to live in purity and love. And as you probably have already experienced today, it's pretty convicting. It, it hits you hard right in the chest. So let's take a look at, at how Jesus does this and, and what he has to say to us. Now, first he addresses murder, which many of us, I think, would probably count as just about the, you know, the worst sin that there is. Uh, kindergartners, can I ask you a question? Um, and answer honestly, okay? Don't be silly. Answer honestly. Have you ever murdered someone? Have you ever killed someone? Yes or no? No, no. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we haven't really done that, right? Hopefully uh, all of us here can answer that today. We have we have not murdered, right? And so, so Jesus says to us, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So, so far, so good, right? We haven't killed anybody. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everybody who insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Oh no. Here we are thinking we're, we're at least following that commandment, the fifth commandment, pretty well, when actually Jesus says our sinful anger has already broken this commandment. Jesus says that you can murder someone with your thoughts, with your words, and that God will hold you eternally accountable. Yikes. You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Wow. Impure thoughts themselves are a radical danger to our souls. So radical action must be taken against them. Here I thought I was doing all right. Jesus doesn't mince words when he speaks of divorce either. I say to you that that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Pretty hard words to a society that, that doesn't take marriage really seriously at all. And even to us in the church that, that don't value the sanctity of the marriage covenant like we should. Jesus finishes up this section by talking about oaths, by, by talking about revenge, by talking about what true love actually looks like. And he shows us that, that our carelessness with our words is a serious sin. 
that the justification we feel when someone hits us and we hit back harder comes from evil. That our love is to be for everybody, especially our enemies, just as his love is. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, what exactly is Jesus saying to you this morning? I know what he's saying to me. He's saying I'm a murderer, an adulterer, a man who is recklessly cavalier with my words, carried away by revenge and wrapped up in myself. And the truth hurts. But it's not just me, is it? In fact, I think the way that Jesus uses the word everyone in this passage is on purpose. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Everyone who divorces his wife. Everyone, everyone, everyone. None is righteous. None is the way that God wants them to be. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we are naked and exposed and nothing we can do about it. So did you come to church today to be confronted by your sins? Are you looking forward to that? Do we take it seriously when we are? You know, last week we heard Jesus say that, that we are blessed. And one of the things I said was that if Jesus says something about us, we have no choice but to believe it and take it to heart. That was true when he called us blessed last week, and it's true today when he calls us sinners who have failed miserably in reaching the bar of God's law. And if you are still at all on the fence about where you stand in all of this, let's hear again the way that Jesus summarizes everything here, right? Would you read this with me? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what Jesus means when he says what he says about murder and adultery and oaths and revenge and love and and all of that. His words raise the bar to convict us of our sin and to drive us to his cross for forgiveness. But oftentimes, instead of running to Jesus, we try to to lower the bar ourselves. And and we do that in at least three different ways. One of the ways is that we compare ourselves to others. You know, I may get angry and lash out every now and then, but at least I don't hit my wife like the guy down the street. Yeah, I I know I've looked at some things I should, and I let my gaze linger a little longer than it should, but it's not like I'm sleeping around like the bad people do. Sure, I I say things I don't mean. I, I make promises I can't keep, but... Not as bad as she is. We compare ourselves to how we perceive others are doing, and then we exonerate ourselves on that basis. Or we compare ourselves to our culture around us, and we sometimes even let that culture dictate our behavior instead of God's clear word. Or we start to to accommodate the culture. We start to apologize for what God says or, or to explain it away and try to make God's law seem more reasonable or acceptable to other people so that they'll think better of him. When here Jesus is doing just the opposite. Sometimes we try to lower the bar by claiming it's not fair. It's unrealistic for God to expect perfection. So let's shoot for something we can attain and call it good. 
like a five-year-old who's always changing the rules of the game so that he can win. I know none of us here know what that's like. We change the rules when we allow ourselves to, to give in to our anger just a little bit. When we allow ourselves to give in to our lustful desires, as long as we don't go all the way. To let our addictions determine our behavior because we can't really be expected to help it. Problem is, there's no such thing as sin in moderation. Even a drop of that poison will kill you forever. We can no more claim God's law is unfair than we can claim that God's word is unclear. Abraham Lincoln once said, It's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that scare me. The parts I do understand. Soren Kierkegaard said much the same when he wrote, The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. We love to change the rules. But no matter how unreasonable we find the iotas and the dots of God's law, his requirement is to be as righteous as he is. No matter how unrealistic we may feel that God is being, Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So if we don't try to lower the bar by comparing ourselves to others or by claiming that it's not fair, we might find ourselves appealing to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. His definition of cheap grace is this. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. The way the Apostle Paul defined it in Romans was the idea that that we should go on sinning so that grace may increase. But that's not real grace, is it? Real grace is not permission to sin. Real grace can only be received when the bar cannot be reached. Real grace does not nullify the penalty for our sin. Rather, it takes the penalty in our place. And that, at long last, is the only way to clear the bar. Thank God that Jesus did not come to to abolish the law, to fulfill it. We couldn't do it. So the Father sent the Son in our place to fulfill it all for us. We don't have to do it because Jesus has done it. In Christ, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in every way. In his perfect life, in his turning the other cheek, in his purity and love, in his death and resurrection, the law has been fulfilled. The bar has been cleared. Unlike us, Jesus had every right to be angry with his brother with his sister, with you and with me, to insult us and to call us fools. But he didn't. Jesus showed us love. He showed his enemies love. He died for us. And on the cross, Jesus famously said, it is finished. It is fulfilled. Only Jesus could clear the bar. By his death and resurrection, he has And in clearing the bar, he has cleared you of all wrongdoing. By his cross and his empty tomb, a verdict has been rendered on you. You are perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
because the blood of Jesus covers over all of your sins. You have heard that it was said that you had fallen short of the glory of God, that that you were a murderer and an adulterer and a sinner in every possible way, that you deserve death and hell. But today Jesus says to you that you are forgiven. He has cleared the bar in your place, that his perfection has replaced your sin, that you are blessed. And the kingdom of heaven is yours. So light of the world, let's shine. The bar has been cleared for us by our Savior, and so it is our joy to live out God's good will for us and for our lives, to control our anger and our lustful eyes and our tongues and our vengeful hearts. As those forgiven by Christ, we want to turn away from sin and turn toward our enemy in love and compassion. We want to reflect the glory of Jesus. We want to show how beautiful it is to live with him. We want to let our light shine so that others may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. We won't do this perfectly, but our perfect heavenly Father will be with us and will help us, and it will all be a joy. To close with an image from Martin Luther, the law, which was once a jail cell from which we could never escape, God has decorated in the most exquisite taste that no royal palace or kingdom could be more desirable. What was once a prison for us has been turned into a paradise. So let us love and serve one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we're going to continue through the Sermon on the Mount into chapter 6 and talk about the, the hidden life of faith. Uh, that Jesus offers to us. Until then, may the peace of God which transcends our understanding guard your hearts and your minds. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.